Welcome to the Voices from the Road podcast, episode number eight, with me, Valerie Singleton. In this program, we head to Gravesend in Kent for an encounter with a most unusual car that was built in 1937, the year I was born. We meet the driving instructor who admits it took him five attempts to pass his test in 2005. And we hear from our consultant historian, Alan Waitley, who took his test in 1963 and passed first time. So why does he now think that he should have failed? First, we head to the county of Kent and the year is 1937. These are uncertain times as dark clouds gather ahead of World War II. Hitler's secret conference puts a seal on his plans for Liebenstraum, or living space, for the German people at the expense of the rest of Europe. Chamberlain's continuing policy of appeasement means concessions both to Hitler and to Mussolini, while in the skies above Lakehurst, New Jersey, on the 6th of May, the Hindenburg airship bursts into flames, killing 35 passengers and one crew member. The incident shatters public confidence in passenger-carrying rigid airships and marks the end of an era for air travel. On a lighter note, Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs has its premiere and Daffy Duck makes his first appearance. Anyway, enough of that. Let's join former BBC producer Chris Stone in Kent. He's talking to Ian Dunkley and with them is a rather special old car. Here we are in Gravesend this morning. I'm with Ian Dunkley and a wonderful, wonderful old car. A Morris? Yes, it's a Morris 10 horsepower, Series 2, 1937. It's a model they only built for about, between, well, Morris was in the business of changing models quite frequently from about 1936 onwards to the war. And the body style came out in mid-36 and carried on to the latter part of 37. How did you acquire it? I originally acquired this car back in 1971-72. I've always had an interest in old machinery. As a teenager, I used to work at weekends on the Kent and East Sussex Railway when it was they were still trying to establish it as a heritage railway. It wasn't actually running then. So I was interested in old machinery. And when I got to started driving, my, I mean, my first car was a, a 1950s Ford 100E van. And I soon learned I had and, uh, my stepfather at the time taught me how to rebuild the engine on that when we discovered it was seriously uh, in need of some TLC and then later I, I had the idea of restoring a pre-war car and I bought a Morris 8 to start with but it really was in terrible condition and beyond my financial resources more than my technical resources and so we disposed of that to another collector and I managed to purchase this which was had been about 90% restored by a gentleman down in um, Guildford, I think it was, somewhere that way. And I bought it and basically finished it off and used it as an everyday car right the way through from uh, about 1973 through till about 78. And we used it for our wedding in 1974. And I sold it then in 1978 um, to do another project that uh, somebody got me interested in, which was a Triumph 10 horsepower van, which was a, quite a unique vehicle. And I struggled on with that for many years, moved house with it two or three times and never thought any, and really in the end gave up and as children came along, uh, gave up on uh, historic cars really, other than having and still retaining an interest. So you sold this one? I sold it, yes, yeah, sold it in 1978 and then rebought the car in 2014. I'd previously been contacted about a year before by a gentleman who'd bought it from an auction and it had reappeared in the club after long abs- in the Morris Register club after a long absence. 
I still had contacts with the club, so he was put in touch with me. And then in mid-2014, he got in touch with me and said, well, if you want to come and see the car, you better come, because I've decided to sell it. So I said, well, look, don't until we've seen it and given us an opportunity to think about buying it. And that's what we did. So we bought it in 2014 in time for our 40th wedding anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. And um, it needed quite a lot of work doing yeah. to it. It, was, it, was, it had deteriorated somewhat over the but years. My goodness, you've made an amazing job of it. I mean, it really is a, a credit to you. Lovely and shiny. The colours are deep and glossy. Tell me something about the um, technical details. How many horsepower? What's the engine size? Well, it was, it, and it's under the old RAC horsepower, mm. um, which was um, rating, which is 10 horsepower, which is based on the, which was done for the for road taxation purposes. Uh, the road tax went up on horsepower, and RAC horsepower was calculated mainly on the diameter of this on the cylinder bore. So these older cars nearly all had very long stroke engines basically to get round the horsepower tax, but it's actually about 1200cc. How long did it take you to restore? Well, it was in roadworthy condition when I bought it in, in, in 2014, but it had, lost, it had lost some of the horses as far as I could remember in terms of the horsepower. It was very sluggish, and one of the issues was that the engine had a broken cylinder head stud, which wasn't leaking, but wasn't ideal. To, so we took it to a few rallies and things, and I thought, i really got to do something about this. So my first thought was just a basic um, rebuild of the, uh, do the valves and so on. Having taken the head off and reground the valves in, which were in very poor condition, uh, put the head back, the compression was worse than when I started. So it ended up a complete engine rebuild. And in the process of doing that, I, uh, yeah, in the process of doing that, I also then took, you know, basically stripped the body back to bare metal because the paintwork was in fairly poor state. Wow. That is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, so it's clean, a clean so say the least, and, and an engine you can see the whole of. And well, that's right. It's, it's very easy to work on. I mean, but people are frightened of uh, pre-war cars. The, the, they don't fetch a lot of money because the enthusiasts all want things from the 60s and 70s. The Morris Register Club, which I belong to, is a fantastic club and has got a lot of members, but our average age of membership is probably 60-plus very few younger members and it's difficult to get young people interested in this really old machinery. But looking at something like that it takes me back years to... Well that's right. To um, to when you could work on engines yourself yeah. easily. And as you can see it's side valve because it's a flat head mm. so the valves are actually built into the block rather than, rather than the cylinder head. Yeah. But when you restored it and you, um, you've actually used it you say for your own wedding, but not just your wedding, it came back into use. Well, that's right, it just, it's just come back into use. That, uh, yeah, I was delighted to be able to take my daughter to the church in it, and uh, that was one of its first outings, actually, after its, after its full rebuild, and uh, yeah, she was, that was really a very special occasion. Other memorable moments? With the club, we took it up to the Beamish Industrial Museum in Northumberland uh, this year, we didn't drive it. It's not a car for motorways these days. <laughs> back in the 70s, I used to drive. We used to drive back and forth for, uh, from Kent to South Wales in it. But these days, it's not for modern traffic really. So we took it up on a trailer. But uh, we were we were able with another and uh, many other a number of other club members. We were given the privilege of being able to drive around Beamish historic town you know, uh, and uh, be part of the exhibit, which was Fantastic. which was great fun. Right. The proof of the pudding they say is in the eating. Let's shut the bonnet. And we'll go for a ride. Start her up. Should fire up. 
it's very naughty not having a seat belt on. <laughs> Something you have to get used to. It is quite uh, no power steering. No, it's uh, it's pretty hard. What about uh, the brakes? And well, the, the brakes aren't bad at all for its for its year. Well, the interior is as immaculate as the exterior and the engine. It's wonderful. Yeah, the interior is very good, really. It's uh, the front seats have been reupholstered, but the back seat is actually original. You were saying about the brakes. Um, Morris um, was a pretty much a, was very much an innovator, and Morris bought Lockheed brakes, uh, and so was installing hydraulic brakes from about 1934 onwards. Uh, so the brakes are hydraulic compared to the Austins at the time of this period, which were still running on cable brakes. Um, so the braking is not too bad, but compared to a modern car, it is. Oh, it's it's dreadful. But <laughs> and, and no synchro on first. No synchro on first, or um, and the synchro on second is pretty marginal. So we're getting back towards base now. Oh, another bump in the road. Um, but I love the um, the dashboard. It's it's like being inside an Art Deco house. Yeah, very much of the period, isn't it? That's wonderful. It's sort of square, but very elegant. Um, instrument panel here. It's fantastic. Well, Ian, thank you so much. Oh, delighted. Glad you enjoyed it. That's amazing. Nostalgia isn't what it used to be, they say, <laughs> but we have to say it is, don't Indeed. we? Indeed. <laughs> thank you. Ian Dunkley was talking to Chris Stone. We move now to 1963, the year of Kennedy's assassination, the Profumo crisis and the release of the Beatles hit I Want to Hold Your Hand. It was also the year of Alan Wakeley's driving test and looking back, he doesn't seem too happy that he passed first time. The UK driving test has had a chequered history and has changed considerably over the years. I passed my test at the first attempt in 1963 at the age of 17. This gave me bragging rights among my friends, but in retrospect I wonder if I really should have passed. The car was a Ford Anglia 105E belonging to the driving school. We left the test centre in Bromley, Kent, and turned left up a hill, near the top of which an identical car from the same driving school was being used to practice hill starts. It was stationary as I approached, so I checked my mirrors signalled right and began an overtaking manoeuvre. At that moment the other car leapfrogged forward suddenly, as learners practising hill starts often can do, but he didn't stall and kept going. This particular learner had obviously not used his rear-view mirror properly. My reaction was to floor the accelerator, with the result that a second or two later I was 1. overtaking on the brow of a hill and 2. travelling at well in excess of the 30 mile an hour speed limit. Towards the end of the test run, we negotiated the erstwhile one-way system from London Road round Bromley Marketplace and into the High Street. This area is now pedestrianised. After a minute or two in heavy traffic on the High Street, the examiner said rather acidly, Your indicator is still on from the Marketplace. I sheepishly cancelled it. A couple of minutes later we returned to the test centre and I fully expected to be told I'd failed. Amazingly, I was handed the coveted slip of paper that announced that I had passed. I drove the Anglia home with my instructor as passenger and told him that I felt very fortunate to have passed. I've always remembered his reply. The driving test is not primarily a test of how well you know and keep to the rules, 
Rather, it is intended to be essentially a test of competence to drive, and you proved your competence. Sixty years later, I wonder how true this is nowadays, and indeed whether it even was true in 1963. If I was indeed competent in 1963, the reason was certainly not that I'd learned the entire Highway Code palette fashion, although I probably should have. For example, I think that it still included details of how drivers of horse-drawn vehicles should signal with their whip, which would have mattered before World War II, but had already ceased to be of any importance even by the 1960s. My parents both drove, but neither had ever taken a test. My father was taught to drive on a fire engine during the war, when testing was suspended. He was then able to obtain a licence without further test once peace was restored under what was effectively an amnesty for people who had learned to drive as part of the war effort. Consequently, he usually drove too fast and tended to assume that the other driver would probably give way to him in almost any situation. On the other hand, my mother learned to drive in her father's car and obtained her first licence in 1933, before the test was introduced. She then drove on a family holiday to Scotland and shortly afterwards from London to Nice and back. She was a considerably better driver than Dad and believed that no amount of testing could entirely replace experience. And that was why, between my 17th birthday in June 1963 and my driving test four months later, I was encouraged to drive as much as possible, culminating in a holiday in Northumberland. For this, I did all the driving, apart from along the Doncaster Bypass, which was already designated as the A1M motorway, where learners, of course, were banned but I did get to drive at 80 miles an hour, legal at the time, along the B6318 parallel to Hadrian's Wall, and also had to negotiate the centre of Newcastle in the rush hour. The following week was my test, and I think I was by then genuinely competent to drive. Arguably, my examiner must have thought so too, because he presumably felt that my actions on the hill during my test were the most sensible in the circumstances, even if technically they broke the law and that the indicator failing to cancel in the high street could be overlooked, because it happens at some point to everybody. Does this saga demonstrate anything about driving tests? Hmm. The written section of the present-day test takes the detailed knowledge from the road to the classroom, or more usually nowadays to the computer keyboard. This should leave the practical test clearer than before to demonstrate the important concept of competence, but it has to be admitted that this is subjective and extremely difficult to quantify. Furthermore, it is possible for the driver who feels competent to make decisions and to act in ways which are apparently sensible but not necessarily safe. I go back to the summer of 1963 when I was still a learner. I was driving the Ford Anglia with my instructor beside me down Beckenham High Street. We approached the roundabout at what was then the Regal Cinema. I slowed but did not stop and went straight on as the instructor had told me. But he jumped out of his skin and yelled, Why didn't you stop? Didn't you see that bus? I replied with an air of innocence, But the bus was en route 54. It was going up the high street that we'd just come down. The instructor pointed out very forcibly that the fact that I happened to know the route of the 54 bus was not a road safety issue. The bus driver had failed to use his indicator and it was essential that I should have stopped until it became clear that he really was turning into the high street. My instructor was correct. There can be occasions where following the rules is more important than using my common sense. After 60 years, I can still see that bus. The driver had forgotten to use his signal. He could equally well have forgotten his route. Improbable, perhaps, but it was a salutary lesson.
I offer no conclusions about driving tests. In many walks of life, we have to choose between what the rules say and what is practical and sensible. Experience is undoubtedly valuable, but much as I may not like the idea nowadays of obeying rules devised by people who could be my grandchildren, I have to admit that the rules really are there for a valid reason. Our consultant historian Alan Wakeley was reflecting on driving tests, including his own, from 1963. Finally for this edition, we meet the driving instructor Terry Cook, who takes us back to 2005. Terry is a prolific podcaster, creator of the Instructor Podcast and the 5-Minute Theory Test. He also writes for Good Motoring magazine. Let's join him now in conversation with James Luckhurst about his driving test, his first, his second, his third, his fourth... Uh, yeah, I'm uh, Terry Cook. I, I am a driving instructor. Uh, I'm based in Bradford in Yorkshire, and I also deliver a, a variety of podcasts for instructors and learners. Let's talk about not you as a driving instructor, but you as a, a student driver. Sorry to say, Terry, it sounds rude, but it, it perhaps wasn't your finest time learning to drive. Uh, it wasn't. Um the proudest moment of my life uh, in general. I think that I was a really good student in terms of didn't cancel lessons, I came to learn, I was keen, but but driving didn't come natural to me. Um, I, I struggled a lot. I didn't like being on the road. I was nervous and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think that what you may be alluding to there is around a certain driving test that I took. Um, in fact, I'll tell you the two because the first one I took I was nowhere near ready for. Um, my instructor got me to book my test. He then forgot I'd booked it. I reminded him a few weeks in advance, and he was very much, um, oh, I haven't put that in my diary, and I remember him getting his paper diary out and finding it and made sure I could do it, and I wasn't ready. Nowhere near. There were loads of stuff I hadn't learned. I can remember quite clearly on that test day, the, the examiner asking me to, to parallel park, and I said to him, I haven't got a clue how to do that, and he just said, give it your best shot, and it went disastrously wrong, and the whole test was a nightmare. Um, and I left that instructor after that because I was very ill-prepared and I should never have done that test. Second instructor was a lot better and he was great, but when I went for my second test, I don't think I've ever felt fear like it because I just had in my head, if there was stuff I didn't know for that first test, there's going to be stuff I don't know for this second test. And I kind of thinking, what's going to go wrong? What's going to go wrong? And I remember walking up the, the hills where the cars were parked at this test centre, and the examiner said, go get in your car. And I looked, uh, my instructor had a black Ford Fiesta with no signage on, just kind of a blank top box of L plates on. And um, there was another car, identical part behind it. And I'm like, I don't know which one is mine. And started panicking. Now that second car could have had signage on, and I'd never have known because I was that panicky. But the best way for me to deal with this is to press the button on the keys and whichever car opens, that must be mine. Anyway, the first one opened, so the, the other driver must have pressed theirs at the same time because I gets in the car and the steering wheel's against my chest. And next thing I know, the examiner's opening the, the passenger side and saying, I think you're in the wrong car. I'm like, yes. So, yes, on, the, on my driving test, this driving instructor got in the wrong car. But you went on from there. So that, that was first and second. Um, there were a few others, weren't there? <laughs> I was hoping we wouldn't mention them. Uh, yes, there were. So, I mean, I will just say, actually, the, the other, I got in my car, correct the correct car afterwards. The examiner was very thorough with the eyesight check, oddly enough. And I remember trying to diffuse my nerves a little bit and saying to the examiner, 
you know, should I even bother with test? Like, and a jokey when he went, just drive. Like, oh, okay, that don't fill me with confidence. But yes, that was an atrocious test as well because of the nerves beforehand. And also, I don't think getting in the wrong car builds your confidence up to begin with. So anyway, off I trotted, uh, failed the second test uh, miserably again, went back for a third time, more confident. I'd had more time with my instructor, more times on the road. I think I was confident. I knew everything. I'd spoken to my instructor about that. I did make a, a single mistake. It was a really, really bad piece of judgment in the, can't remember exactly, but it was something like there was a car. I was pulled up at the side of the road. There was a car behind me, a car coming. So the car behind me couldn't go. So I thought I was safe to go. And it turns out I wasn't. So then I had to take a fourth test, which uh, I genuinely thought I had failed. But the uh, the examiner told me I passed, thankfully. So fourth attempt, I passed. Looking back then, and at the whole system of licensing and, and testing, is it not something we could probably get rid of now? Because the, the clever telematics that we have access to surely would provide a better way of measuring if we're driving safely enough to have a full license. We don't need 40 minutes of jeopardy with so much stress and panic leading up to it. And, and then we'd all feel better and probably be better drivers. I mean, that sounds like a lovely scenario. I think that there needs to be a human element there, in my opinion. I'm not necessarily sure how much. I think there should be more around attitude and mindset of towards road safety than just a physical skill. I think we we all know as drivers that the actual art of moving a car and steering it, once you get to grips with it, isn't that difficult. You know, some people find it harder than others, but the art of moving and controlling a car, once you've mastered it, is okay. It's the stuff beyond that. It's the, the mindset of dealing with someone else that cuts you up. It's the mindset of running late or driving tired or using your mobile, this kind of stuff that, that causes a problem. So, I'd, you know, the, the, there are other ways that we can uh, manage someone's skills to reduce, like I say, the, the reliance upon nerves or, or, you know, trying to avoid nerves. Um, but I, I think there should be something else in place as well to, to measure someone's mindset and attitude towards road safety. I suppose one more question, Terry, having the uh, experience that you had had, the varied experience as a as a learner, I suppose choosing a career as a driving instructor wouldn't have been the most obvious. So explain how you came to be a driving instructor. I love working with people in small groups um, and whatever job I've done, and I've done a variety of, I've worked on building sites, um, run my own business, worked at McDonald's for years, and I've always had a training capacity in those roles. I've always liked training people, but I've never liked training people in large numbers. It's always been small groups, and it doesn't get much smaller than one-on-one -on -one in a car. And that idea I liked uh, as well of the, you know, the, the idea of being self-employed and running my own business again and that side of it. So those two things merged quite well. And if I'm being completely honest, I often find the younger generation, and by that, anyone below 30 is young to me, um, but I find the younger generation a lot more refreshing to talk to and work with than, than, than some of the older. I think they're a lot more uh, liberal in their views and uh, a lot more willing to accept change and, and accept these ideas. Whereas I find often when I work with the older generation, 
they're very much well you know i should be doing this in 10 hours and you know i should do it this way and grr, rah, stamp 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 whereas the youth are very much like oh okay let's try this then so i think that there's a big mixture of reasons there Terry Cook recounting his various attempts to pass the driving test in 2005. And with that, we come to the end of this episode in the Voices from the Road podcast. I do hope you've enjoyed listening. And I look forward very much to introducing another fascinating selection from our podcast archive next time. By the way, might you be interested in taking part? We'd love to hear from you if you have an idea to contribute. You'll find the contact details on the website, so do get in touch. But for now, from me, Valerie Singleton. It's goodbye.